have a seat. Let's find our seats. So I don't know if it was a joke that Matt and Patrick wanted to play on me, but they made me get up on this stage. I don't know if it's because I'm short or what, but high from the magic carpet, as Matt calls it. <laughs> so I, I am so honored that you guys would take time out of your weekend uh, to come spend it here with us, and I'm honored that Patrick would give me this topic, this verse today, because it has been wrecking me the last couple months or so. It's been changing me, convicting me, and challenging me in so many areas. I can't even tell you all the areas. But I, I want to start off with a word of prayer that God would move at least a little bit, if not equally, the same amount he's moved in my life and your life. So let's pray real quick before we get started. God, you are the master of all things. You are the creator of all things, and you have a purpose for all of us, and you are so good. Your word challenges and moves, and it's alive and working, and it cuts to the soul and between bone and marrow. God, you know it all. Your word is so powerful, and we thank you for it. And we pray that you move today, that you change hearts today, and that you challenge and convict us to change to be more like you today. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week, we started off a series in the Beatitudes, and Patrick gave a really cool definition of those. They're a list of attitudes or judgments that we should have about ourselves based on who God is and what he's done for us. And he started off the, the series with the first verse, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he defined that poor in spirit, uh, poor in spirit as feeling and knowing that we are powerless that we are morally unworthy, that we are spiritually bankrupt before our powerful and holy God, and yet knowing that all joy and all purpose and all love come from Him. And if we're in that spot, that, in that frame of mind work, ours is the kingdom of heaven. It's awesome. He did a great job last week. And our verse today, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you guys ever read something in the Bible and think, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Sorry. That doesn't make any sense. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Like, the, the literal Greek in this verse, it says, fortunate and happy are those who grieve so severely that it takes complete control over them, so much so that it cannot be hidden, for they'll be consoled. It's like, what? You mean, God, I should feel fortunate and happy whenever I lose my job? I should feel fortunate and happy when my marriage is struggling or when I lose my marriage or when I lose a child. God, what are you saying? Like, whenever I have an anxiety attack, I should feel fortunate and happy. Whenever I question if anyone will ever love me, I should feel fortunate and happy. Or if I'll ever be good enough. Like, at the worst moment of my life, God, you're telling me I should feel fortunate and happy? Like, why would God... Why would Jesus start off the greatest sermon ever given, the, the sermon or speech that more books have been written about this speech than any other sermon or speech ever given? Why would he start off with that? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I think, though, Jesus is a pretty smart guy. 
And I think sometimes we read scripture or we read something that he says and we don't fully understand what he's saying. And so maybe today we don't fully understand what Jesus is saying in this statement. We don't truly understand the the power and the true redemption in this statement. Because maybe there's a whole backstory that a lot of us are very familiar with, but maybe there's this whole backstory that we've been blind to the effects it has on us, on our words, our thoughts, our decisions, everything. And so I think to really understand the depth of Jesus' statement, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. In order to truly understand it, I think we have to start at the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And I think today, God is not only going to shed some light on this verse, but I pray and I hope that God sheds some light in your life behind every motivation behind every action or thought or word that you think, say, or do, I think today he's going to shed some light on that motivation. So what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Well, it's the whole humanity. So God, he'd created this beautiful and perfect world teeming with creativity and beauty and perfection. And he made Adam and Eve to be in authority and rule over all the plants in the ground and the animals on the ground and the fish in the air and the fish in, or the <laughs> fish in the air. Yeah. You didn't know God was that creative, did you? All the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, they were to rule over all of it. And uh, before God made Eve from Adam, he put Adam to sleep and created Eve from Adam. And he gave them one command. He's like, here, you can have all of this. I made this all for you. But you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And what happened? The stupid snake comes along and deceives Eve and Adam into eating the fruit. In Genesis 3, chapter 7, or chapter 3, verse 7, rather, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. He's like, Adam, where are you? Where are you? And Adam answers, I I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I canted you not to eat from? And Adam, he's like, well, this woman that you gave me she made me eat it. And, the, and, the, and Eve, he's like, she's like, well, the snake made me do it. And so they're blaming one another. Meanwhile, humanity is kicked out of the garden forever and ultimately God's presence. What happened? I mean, a lot of us are very familiar with this story. And simply knowing these events may, think we make, us, we may make us think we know how paradise was lost. But it doesn't mean that we know what happened in the Garden of Eden because even basic questions about Genesis chapter 3 
will stump even the, the Christian who's been coming their whole life to church. Like, how does ingesting fruit from a tree constitute a damnable offense? And how does ingesting food in general transfer knowledge or alter immortality? And still further, like, who's really to blame in this story? Is it God? Is it Adam? Or is it Eve? Or is that that snake? Or is that, that snake? And speaking of the snake, like, what did his deception actually accomplish? Was it just a mere indiscretion? And why did the, the action of eating the fruit lead to such a drastic result as purging humanity from Eden? Was God upset because he didn't get his way? Or was it something worse? I think even if we, we don't know the, the answer to the question, what happened in the Garden of Eden, we definitely know the effects of what happened in the Garden of Eden because we experience them every day. We experience them from sore muscles to migraines to labor pains to uh, lawn wars with the OCD neighbor next door. We experience them uh, like the Cubs winning the World Series, finally breaking their streak a couple years ago of 108 years. We experience true suffering. And we experience the effects of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 by senseless mass shootings or bombings at churches and elementary schools. I think even if we don't know the answer to the question, what happened in the Garden of Eden, we know the effects of what happened in Eden. And I think a a Christian who has been coming to church for a long time, they might say the answer, well, sin entered the world. God can't be around sin, and so he had to expel sin and Eden and uh, Adam and Eve from Eden. Okay, sure, I'll give that one to you. But what is sin? I think a lot of times we skate past this question, and I think a lot of you tempted to disengage from the message right now because you're like, oh, I know this. I know this question. Check. I'm good. Move on. I think we skate by this question and we don't really let it give the weight that it deserves in our life and in our faith. It's easy to assume a definition and then condemn what we think sin is through boycotts and picket lines and mean Facebook posts. But when we're pushed to offer a real definition of what sin is, A lot of us will kind of stumble over our words and give answers that reveal more uh, general confusion instead of real theological depth. Like, I know what sin is. Don't ask, just don't ask me to say what it is. And I think that's odd given our core belief as Christians that Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins. And I think a mature Christian, answering this question, what is sin? They'll come up with a a good definition. And uh, it is, well, sin is an indiscretion, uh, intentional or unintentional, that demands punishment from God. And then we place this definition on Genesis 3, and we come up with theological labels like original sin or total depravity or original guilt uh, or now we were we are now born sinful or we're now born with sin and there's so many things unclear about these labels uh like what do you mean born with sin is it being is it like being born with a set of car keys is it 
Like, what do you mean uh, original sin? Like, what time period does it refer to? Adam's time period or my time period? And is sin uh, an action that you do, or is it some sort of inherited disease? Like, what does it mean to be sinful from birth? And with each new label, I think even more questions and rabbit trails and systems arise that all distract us from the original question. What is sin? And I think our ability to, uh, inability rather, to clearly define sin, it affects our view of God, it affects our view of church, it affects our view of communion, it affects our view of Satan, it affects our perception of what really happened in the Garden of Eden. And it affects our ability to evangelize. It affects our ability to decipher what's right and wrong and even our ability to endure with perseverance in a world full of chaos. If we don't get this right, this definition of sin, it affects everything about us. But wait, isn't sin indeed a an indiscretion against God that demands punishment? Yeah, that's a good definition. But what if it's worse than that? What if sin is more sinister than just an indiscretion or just a violation that sends us to hell? Like, yeah, hell sounds bad. You don't want to go there. But what if it's worse than that? What if sin is far more terrifying than just a shift in status from being innocent to guilty or or, uh, blameless to damned? Like, what if it's worse than that and worse than eviction from a garden? I think that's exactly the case. I think the the true definition of sin and the actions of sin is far worse than anything that we may have ever thought of before. And I think Satan is quite pleased with our underwhelming definition of sin. Because if we truly understand the definition of sin, we'll realize that the result is far worse than just hell, which requires this uh, rescue mission from heaven that sweep us up into the sky by and by. No. I think if we truly understand the definition of sin, it will move us to mourn. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so in order to understand the definition of sin, we're going to take a step back and understand the definition of union. Union. Humanity was made for union. We were made for connection because of our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They exist in this perfect union. And not just existing like with or near one another, but it's a literal inner penetration of three people into one being so that what one does, essentially all three do. And yet the distinction between the three is always retained because holy union doesn't destroy or suppress persons. It enhances them. Holy union enhances one another. Union without obliteration. Community without the loss of individual identity. And humanity, being created in the image of God, presents us at the outset of life not just a capacity or the ability for union, but the compulsion for it. And we crave it. We seek for it. We long for it. We search for it. And when we finally find it, we embrace it recklessly, regardless of the consequences, good or bad. And that's why 
Your kids are great kids, but when they're around that certain group of kids, they start to do things that they never do. It's because connection is so important to us, regardless if it's a good or bad, good or bad connection. And it's why in prison, the, uh, that isolation, solitary confinement, is saved for the worst of the worst because the prisons have figured it out. Humanity was made for connection with one another. And if you take that away, that's almost as bad as death itself. Or whenever an infant is born and they're withheld from human connection, they literally suffer disabilities for the rest of their life. Like, we were made for union. And the image of God in us insatiably, insatiably desires union. What is union? It's two becoming one. And positive examples of this, hopefully you've seen them or are experiencing them. Uh, A marriage built on God's foundation, where the husband will uh, sacrifice his own wants, his own abilities to lift his wife up and to honor her and to love her and to cherish her above himself. And it's where a wife will submit to the husband and, and respect him and follow his leading and put his desires above hers. And they're both mutually submitting to one another. And it's beautiful. And it's perfect. And that's how it should be. Or it's like a family who's uh, selflessly serving one another. I know this is way more rare <laughs> than it probably should be, but brothers giving the other brother the toy because they want them to have it. Or uh, parents putting their kids' needs above their own or kids putting their parents' needs above their own. Like It's a, a beautiful thing if that happens. Or it's like a bo- our bodies. When, it's, when they're functioning healthily, our muscles and our organs all operate as they should and we can live and move and breathe and eat and fish and run and swim and bike and do all these incredible things when we're functioning properly because they're existing and they're functioning without obliterating the other. But when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they were not merely disobeying a command, although indeed they were, they were not merely just committing an indiscretion, although, yes, they definitely did. The action was more dire, the result more severe, because sin is willful union with something or someone other than God. And therefore, Genesis 3 doesn't just assign us a new status, uh, innocent to guilty or blameless to damned. No, we, we became something new, something altogether different. Because this union that we chose not just affects where we go, heaven or hell, but our entire being. Because in the Garden of Eden, humanity chose to rip itself from life and attach itself to death. We literally chose union with death. In a popular verse, it says it. Maybe we didn't realize it, but Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You unite yourself with death. And not only death, the Greek means to, uh, it comprises all the miseries of sin. So not only with uh, physical death, but with spiritual death and continual and consistent interactions with the effects of of death. Living united to death has made us into people who are nothing like we were supposed to be. 
Our union with death has affected our rationality, how we think. It's affected our social interactions with one another. It's affected our passions. It's affected our conscious decisions and our unconscious decisions. Union with death. Our union with death is why abandonment is more common than community. Why retaliation or getting that revenge for someone who wronged you feels more natural than offering forgiveness. Why self-harm or isolation or death itself seems more comforting than love. And it's why it's normal and part of being a man to watch porn and to masturbate. And why it's, it's normal for people before they get married to live together and sleep together just to try it out. It's why denominational loyalty is held to a higher standard than unity. And it's why America, church in America is the most segregated hour in the world. And we're okay with it because we justify it as, oh, they like to worship their way, they like to worship their way, we like to worship our way, we're good. We can justify it. Our union with death has affected everything, even us inside the church, and it's why our union with death is why it's possible to see mass shootings or mass bombings on Easter and then forget about it whenever someone cuts you off on the highway. And our union with death is why it's possible that it can be celebrated when a doctor terminates a baby. Do you guys know that like right now Illinois is trying to pass a law that makes it legal for abortions to happen to babies even outside, like halfway outside the womb? Our union with death has changed everything about our rational thinking. We are no longer rational beings when we are united with death. Are you mourning yet? We have become something totally different than what we were at creation. We have become destitute and despicable and destructive, and we are one flesh with death. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You see, whenever Jesus said this statement, he wasn't just saying that sad people should be happy He was saying that there's an answer to our pain and to our suffering that's greater than we could ever imagine. We chose to unite ourselves with death to become some totally opposite of what God intended us to be. That's what we should mourn. Yes, mourn the pain and the suffering that you go through with your marriage and your kids and your family or the lack thereof. Like, yes, mourn that, but mourn even greater the fact that we are united with death without Christ. And it's at that moment when we realize the depth of our sin, when we grieve so severely that it takes complete control over us, so much so that it cannot be hidden, it's at that point when Jesus says he's here. Earlier in the message, uh, I gave you a more fleshed-out version uh, or definition of those highlighted words, blessed and mourned. I purposely did not do comforted until right now. Comforted in the Greek, it carries with it the idea of not being comforted with words, but with the presence of another. What happened in the Garden of Eden? We united ourselves with death, but yet 
This union with death is not the end of the story. God never stops his pursuit of us. Regardless of our pain or perception of ourselves, God isn't repulsed by our union with death. He isn't repelled by the sin committed to you or by you. He doesn't turn his back on those afflicted with death's sting. He doesn't shield his face from our filth. He doesn't remove his image from our souls. He calls us. He pursues us. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. What was God's answer to what happened in Eden? It wasn't kicking Adam and Eve out. It wasn't the calling or promise of Abraham. It wasn't the exodus of Moses. It wasn't the law. It wasn't the prophets. And it wasn't really even the cross or the resurrection. God's plan, his solution to our problem, his solution to our unity with death happened on a silent night in a little town called Bethlehem. Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself, like the song we sang right before communion. Taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The incarnation of Jesus Christ reveals to us that the original sin is far worse than mere guilt. It's far worse than just moving us from heaven to hell. For when God answered Eden and began carrying out his plan of redemption, it wasn't just through a pronouncement of innocence or the annihilation of death, but he became flesh. The God of light, love, and life rejected that to be united instead with death, darkness, and deception. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become his righteousness. When we were dead in our sin and our transgressions, United with death, we were God's enemies, but he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while humanity was united with death, Christ became human and died for us. For you. Because when Jesus looked at death, he didn't see death, he saw you. He didn't seek union with death, he sought union with you. But in order to be reunited with us, he honored humanity's decision to be united with death, and he too united himself to death. Because if he were just to destroy death once and for all, he would, in one sense, destroy humanity because we were one flesh with death. And so in order to save us, he too became one flesh with death. The God of light, love, and life became union, became one flesh with darkness, deception, and death for you. But where we united ourselves with death through disobedience, through not obeying God's command in the garden, Jesus united himself with death through obedience. You see it. He became obedient to death. And he says in the garden, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see this union that Jesus has with death doesn't repeat Eden. 
It redeems it. It redeems it. In a garden, in Gethsemane, Jesus chose death through obedience, not disobedience, not deception, not like us. Christ's union with death was birthed through fidelity and divine clarity. So not through rebellion, but through faithfulness. Not through sin, but through purity and righteousness. Christ was not deceived like Adam was, not like us, where we chose our death for selfish and destructive reasons. Jesus chose union with death for you. For when Christ looked at death, he didn't see death. He saw you. What he saw was a fallen and broken humanity. He didn't choose to unite with death. He chose to unite with you to redeem your deception by his holiness, to redeem your selfishness with his selflessness, to redeem your hatred with his love, to redeem your judgmental eyes, church, with his grace, to redeem your darkness with his light, to redeem your death with his light, and to redeem your isolation with his presence. Indeed, Fortunate and happy are those who grieve so severely it takes complete possession over them, so much so that it cannot be hidden. For they will be comforted with the presence of the one who defeated death once and for all. Indeed, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So here in a few minutes, as uh, the band is going to come out and lead us, in, lead us in worship, I want right now to be the takeaway. This moment where we sing two songs and we worship again, I want that moment to be our takeaway. Use this time to repent. To say, yes, God, I have chosen to unite myself with death. I don't want it anymore. Death is an awful master. It teaches me to hate and to be afraid and to have anxiety. I don't want that anymore. I want you, God. All we literally have to do, God has severed that union with the death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. He has severed the union. All we have to do is literally turn around. That's what the word repent means. Turn around back to the light and be reunited with Christ. And if you haven't been reunited with Christ through baptism, do it. Death has nothing for you. Death has more death. Death has more disease, more sadness, more anxiety, more fear. Christ makes it possible to forgive. He makes it possible to love your enemies. He makes it possible to pray for those who persecute you. He makes it possible to evangelize without saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Listen to me. He makes it possible to experience life and joy even in the midst of incredible disease. He makes it possible. To have eternal life with the Father. Sin has made us into something that we were never supposed to be. But Christ redeems us. He severs that union with death. And he makes it possible to experience joy even in the midst of the worst of times. Use this time to repent. Use this time to to worship and thank the God who isn't repulsed by what humanity has become, 
but instead he would become human and unite himself with death and conquer it once and for all. We should worship the fact that Christ's name is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that he would place over all his own desires our redemption, that he is here with us today because the presence of God in your life will change everything. It will redeem you to be back into the person you're supposed to be. And if you haven't reunited yourself with Christ through baptism, let's talk. Uh, You can talk to me. Mike Boomis, during the songs, is going to come up. You can talk to him, too. We have prayer teams that are going to be around the room. And if you need someone to walk you through what it means to, to destroy your union with death, because it's already been destroyed, and reunite yourself with life, please go and talk and pray with people. Because we're here for you. We've experienced this transformation from death to life. And I'm telling you, it is the greatest thing, the greatest that you could ever experience on this side of heaven. Redemption is your purpose. Redemption is who you're supposed to be and experience. Not death, not lies, not fear. Only Christ's redeeming love. Find someone to talk to. Let's stand and worship.